and a one, two, three, four. Welcome everyone to the Life Point Table Talk podcast. My name is Jason, and we are coming in today at week 22 of our Bible reading reflection. And today I'm flying solo. So let's see how this goes. We have got, as usual, a lot of ground to cover. We're looking at First Chronicles 23 through Second Chronicles 12, all the way up to 12, and then John 11 through 13. And so we are in Chronicles. We'll start off in Chronicles here. Uh, Chronicle, First Chronicles 23. A lot of this is retelling. It's kind of like the the way they did with Moses. Uh, they tell the story twice, kind of back to back. Same deal here. Same story. A lot of what we've heard in Samuel in uh, some of Kings, and uh, same story, but uh, there's extra details and a, a little bit different perspective here. Um, so let's jump into it. So we're in uh, 23 here. David is getting old. He has made Solomon king. He assembles all the leaders and the priests together and the Levites. Uh, and he starts assigning people for the temple. So David uh, makes incredible plans for the temple. He's pretty much laying it all out for when Solomon uh, becomes king. And so he assigns 24,000 workers for the temple, 6,000 officials and judges, 4,000 gatekeepers, 4,000 people to praise and worship. 4,000. Amazing. Uh, and then it lists by descendants. Uh, Aaron, it starts with Aaron's descendants who are chosen to consecrate the most holy items and make sacrifices. Then it talks about the Levites. Uh, interesting note, it says they are now, the Levites are now relieved of having to carry the tabernacle because it was going to be permanently in Jerusalem. Interesting note there. Um, the Levites' job is now to help Aaron's descendants in the temple, taking care of the courts and the rooms and the ceremonial purifications. Um, every morning and evening, they offered thanks and praise to God. Get into 24. Uh, it lists uh, by descendants, uh, specific names, and order of duty where they would serve in the temple. It starts with Aaron's descendants, and it has a long list. Then it has a long list of the Levite descendants and their duties to serve in the temple. Um, David then assigns people to prophesy as they played instruments. Interesting note there. Um, these this this must have been extra than just regular musicians because it specifically notes they were assigned to prophesy while they played uh, and gave thanks and praise to God. Um, and it gets into talking about the musicians in twenty five. It talks uh, 
I noted earlier there's 4,000 that were uh, to be part of the praise and worship, but this part is talking specifically about, I think, a uh, extra-skilled set of musicians. There were 288 of them, and they were well-trained and skilled to make music to the Lord. Um, and they had their, these responsibilities. It was uh, in their family, their fathers. It spe specifically notes their fathers uh, trained them and watched over them with what they did there in the temple. And for a lot of these duties, it's interesting uh, that these different families and tribes have, they cast lots. Uh, so it's kind of up to chance as to where you're going to serve and what you're going to do in certain areas. Um, there were so many of them in the different ages and whatnot. I think uh, it was probably seen to be more fair to leave it up to chance on some of this. Uh, then 27, it gets into the gatekeepers. Uh, they are from the Karahites. Uh, lists the descendants who are part of that. Again, they're casting lots for responsibilities for the gatekeepers. Uh, notes who was at the east, north, south, and west gates and who was assigned there. Uh, specific um, uh, descendants of Leyden are the supervisors of the storehouses. Interesting, by family, these are usually... Uh, uh, designated to certain uh, parts of the uh, temple and nation, really. Um, the Levites had to be over the storehouse containing consecrated things because they were the only ones allowed to be involved in that. Um, then it goes through in 27, it starts listing the Israelite family leaders and commanders uh, talking about the army, it breaks down commanders, and these, each commander is over a division of 24,000 troops. And uh, so it lists all the commanders, it lists officers of tribes. Um, and while, while it's talking about this, it kind of gives a side note here about how David didn't count the males 20 years old and younger and it says, because God had promised to make them as numerous as the stars. And um, it notes that Joab had started to count them, but he didn't finish because God was angry. And this is referring to the time when David uh, counted the army and God was angry and eventually it ended up in a plague and a whole big disaster. Uh, but it gives a little bit of insight there as to why that happened. It, it, they are connecting it to this promise that God had made that he was going to make them as numerous as the stars. So counting it, counting their uh, army, specifically the males 20 years and uh, younger, uh, was somehow an affront to that um, that broke faith with that promise. Uh, so they didn't record those numbers. Um, then it gets into listing the royal officials, 
uh, kings over storehouses, field storehouses, charge of field workers, vineyards, olive trees, uh, cattle, sheep, donkeys. Uh, it's basically listing uh, the officials that were over all of these different parts of the, the nation there in Jerusalem, I think, specifically. Um, 28, David is bringing, he brings all of Israel together, um, all the officials, Levites, the whole uh, uh, country, city there. Um, tells them how he wanted to build the temple, but God wouldn't let him because he was a warrior and he spilled too much blood. So his son Solomon is going to and again, he uh, charges Solomon if he will obey God and follow him, uh, he will have a permanent inheritance for his children, uh, and he will possess this good land. Um, again, a big if there, uh, as we had just read, that doesn't work out too well. Um, he charges the people the same way if they'll follow God's commands uh, they will have possession of this good land and um, he then gives Solomon David gives Solomon the blueprints for the temple and the storehouses and the rooms as he envisioned so David had a whole plan here he was ready to uh, enact so uh, all, all Solomon had to do was do it. He didn't really have to plan this out. David had it all uh, worked out for him. Uh, so 29, uh, again, David calls a huge assembly together, uh, telling the people God has chosen Solomon to build the temple, and it's a great task, and he's very young, and he's, and he's going to need help doing this. And David is making every effort to provide whatever's needed for this uh, work. And then he goes on, and this is interesting, he makes a personal commitment. He gives his own, uh, he donates all his own personal treasury to the temple project. And then he calls uh, on all the people who are there as well to give as well. Um, and... Uh, the people are, uh, they donate willingly. They are delighted to give, and it lists uh, uh, by tribal leaders what they gave, and this seems to be a huge uh, uh, celebration. Everyone is happy to give and excited about building the temple. So it says, David is happy and praises the Lord in front of all the assembly. And then it records his praise, what he had said, and uh, it's it's a, a really beautiful prayer there, or praise, kind of same thing. But he's talking about, he says, who am I and who are we as these people to be in this position to build the temple? And he, t and he talks about the brevity of life. Our lives are temporary, and we're just passing through, and this wealth we've collected is all yours. Uh, so he's kind of putting things into perspective here. And um, he talks about their motives, that their motives were pure, and God knew their motives were pure, and he asked God to help them keep their motives pure of heart. And it says the entirely 
entire assembly praised God together and bowed down before the Lord. Uh, the next day they made huge sacrifices and burnt offerings and had a huge feast. Um, they designate uh, Solomon king again a second time. Uh, everyone pledges their allegiance to Solomon. Uh, and then it talks about the end of David's life. David reigned for 40 years. It says he died at a good old age, having enjoyed life, wealth, and honor. And that is how First Chronicles ends. And now we get into Second Chronicles. Uh, it starts off with Solomon. Uh, Solomon has become king. It says God has magnified him greatly. Uh, he solidified his power. And uh, it talked about how that happened. It was actually a lot of intrigue there. Uh, he, had, he had some uh, forces come against him right there at the beginning, some of his own family. And uh, he had to kind of clean house. But he's, he's solidified power. And now he is ready to build the temple. He goes to the tent. The ark is still in the tent. And he makes a huge sacrifice there. And later on that same night, night uh, God speaks to him in a dream. And this is part where God asks him what he can give him. And Solomon asks for wisdom. And God seems to like this answer. And he says, I'm not just going to give you wisdom. I'm going to also give you riches and wealth and honor. And uh, he sure does do that. Um, and it starts then listing some of the wealth that Solomon had, talking about his chariots and his horses. Um, then we get into chapter 2. Uh, Solomon has ordered the temple to be to be built. So we're starting on the actual construction here and his royal palace, which um, uh, is massive as well. So he needs help even, even beyond what has uh, been given to him by David and the elders. Uh, so he gets King Huram to help and he sends in his skilled craftsmen and uh, he sends supplies and these special craftsmen who are able to do a lot of the intricate work that needs to be done. And so Solomon starts construction, and it's interesting, they build the temple on Mount Moriah, and this is a place where uh, it says David saw the angel. That plague I was talking about earlier when he had counted the people, and uh, God was angry and sent a plague, and there's... An, an angel shows up, and uh, it says he showed up on the threshing floor, which is um, uh, there, and David sees, sees this angel, and uh, he repents, and God calls him off. But anyways, this exact spot, the threshing floor, it, where the angel had appeared, or God had appeared, uh, is where they build the temple, the same exact place. Uh, then it starts listing the details of the temple, the foundation sizes, 90 feet long, 30 feet wide. I think that's just the inner part. Um, lots of details here. Gold overlay on almost everything, the rafters, the walls, the doors, decorative cherubim on the walls. I would love to see that, what that looked like. In the most holy places, they made two cherubs. These things are massive with giant outstretched wings, uh, a c combined wingspan of 30 feet. 
And then they put a curtain in there in the most holy place as well uh, with all kinds of special embroidery on it. It was blue and purple and crimson and white and decorated with cherubim. Uh, it talks about the pillars and the way they were decorated. Um, they built this, uh, what they call the sea, uh, which was this giant water basin, uh, basically like a pool of some sort. Uh, and it was bronze, this big bronze basin, and it sat on 12 uh, statues of bulls. And it could hold 18,000 gallons of water, seven and a half feet high, 45 feet uh, circumference. And this was where the priests washed uh, before uh, their ceremonies. Um, it lists the gold lampstands, uh, 100 gold bowls. Uh, and then it talks about the specific work that this... Uh, Hiram Abi, uh, who was the um, craftsman who was sent in by the other king, uh, Solomon assigned him to work in the temple, and he makes all kinds of. Uh, um, he makes the lattice work, the pillars. He makes bowls, shovels, pots, basin, all in polished bronze. Uh, he was like an expert in uh, craftsmanship, and. Um, it talks about the altar that Solomon made. It was a gold altar, gold lampstands, gold doors, a lot of gold, a lot of gold in there. Um, and then we get to, to chapter five. Solomon has finished the temple. Um, he gets all the leaders together and elders together and all the men, uh, and they get together. It's during the time of, uh, festival, the Feast of Tabernacles, so they're having this kind of double celebration. Uh, and he has the Levites carry the ark. So I talked about, they they mentioned earlier, the Levites were uh, relieved of duty of carrying the ark, but they had one more time. This last time, they carry the ark uh, from the tent they had uh, constructed. Well, it was actually the same tent that Moses had made um, where the ark had been uh well, this tent had been set up in Jerusalem, and now the temple was done. So the Levites bring the ark from the tent into the temple, and they make sacrifices as they're going in. Um, sheep and cattle, it says, more sacrifices than could be counted. Then they place the ark in the most holy place under those giant uh, cherub wings that I was talking about. Um Pretty, pretty fantastic, uh, this inner chamber. Um, and it notes here, it's interesting, there's nothing in the ark at this point but two, the two tablets Moses had put in there. And uh, so it says, Everybody came together and loudly praised the Lord with trumpets and cymbals and instruments and singing. Um, and they're singing... Certainly, he is good, and his love endures forever. Um, and it notes the priests could not carry out their duties because the uh, a cloud of glory of God's splendor had filled the temple. Um, an amazing scene here. Um, 
And then at 6, the same scene, Solomon gets up to give a blessing over everyone. And um, they've constructed like a little stage for him. And um, it's like a platform. And he gets up and kneels down on the platform and puts his hands up and blesses the people. And um, he says, God has chosen Jerusalem to dwell in the house of David to be over his people. And he prays um, how God had fulfilled, praising God, had fulfilled his promise that day. And he prays to God that his eyes would be on the people, that he would see them and listen to them when they pray that he would hear and forgive them when they sin, uh, that he would act justly in their lives, and uh, that he would bring them back when they've strayed away and that their enemies have overtaken them, um, that he would send rain when there is drought, and um, that he would hear the people when they're afflicted by disease and plague and sickness and pestilence. Um, that he would forgive the people who have sinned and may his eyes be open and attentive to the prayers of his people in that place. Uh, then he asked God to ascend into his resting place. Interesting. Um, may your priest experience deliverance. May your followers rejoice in prosperity. Uh, do not reject your chosen ones and remember the promise you made to David. Uh, when F Solomon in 7, it says, When Solomon finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the offering and sacrifices that they had there. And it says, His dazzling glory filled the temple. And this is the, the part it, it mentioned earlier. The priests couldn't fulfill their duties because it was so... Uh, thick and intense, this cloud, this glory cloud that showed up uh, right then when he was finished. And it says, when the people saw this, they they knelt down and worshiped the Lord. The Lord is good and his love never ends. Um, then they dedicate the temple with sacrifices, 22,000 cattle, 120,000 sheep, blowing trumpets and playing instruments, uh, interesting, the instruments David had made uh, specifically. They celebrate for seven days uh, for the temple celebration, and then they celebrate another seven days for the um, festival. So they're there for 14 days altogether. And uh, it says everyone left uh, happy and joyous and full, so they... As a, as a nation, they had a huge celebration for two weeks. Uh, so this is kind of the, uh, a high moment in the history of, of the Israelites here. And um, then it says, Sometimes later, God appears to Solomon in a dream. And God confirms. He says, I have chosen this temple to be the place where sacrifices can be made to me. And he uh, accepts uh the prayer that Solomon had given that he will forgive the people and when they're humble and pray and turn from their sin he'll uh, take them back he'll hear their prayers and never stop watching over them 
he will keep his promises. And here it is again, uh, the big if. If they obey, if they do not obey, I will pull you out of the land and I will desert this temple. And when people see what has happened to Israel, they'll know it's because they rejected God. Um, Pretty incredible there. And so then we get into chapter 8. It, it says it took 20 years for the temple and and Solomon's palace to be built. Um, so these were huge, massive construction projects um, uh, actually across the kingdom. Solomon is building up the whole kingdom across the land. There's other cities he's building up. their their walls and their uh, armies and whatnot. And... Um, it says Solomon used his soldiers and the troops to do a lot of this work. Uh, he had also made slaves of uh, many of the the uh, people there who they were supposed to uh, have taken them out originally when they first came in, and um, uh, the people that were still there that they hadn't taken out uh solomon makes them slaves and they are part of this uh huge construction uh project and um it says everything solomon had planned was now finished uh so solomon's kingdom is solidified the temple is finished his palace is finished and now he starts sending out uh, ships. He has a whole fleet of ships, and they're bringing back tons of gold and all kinds of other uh, exotic things to that uh, to the land of Judah. And uh, chapter nine, and gets into uh, how uh, the queen of Egypt comes. Um, comes to visit Solomon and uh, has all has a bunch of questions for Solomon and she's amazed because he answers all of her questions with wisdom um, she's her breath is taken away by the palace and the servants and the sacrifices and the incredible wealth and prosperity uh, that Solomon has and power uh, she gives Solomon four tons of gold and jewels and uh, all the best spices from her land. Um, it talks about some of the different things his his ships are bringing in. Um, specific wood that they didn't have around there and jewels. It says nothing like what they were bringing in had ever been seen in Judah. Uh, other kings and leaders are bringing him gold as well. It says he receives 23 tons of gold a year. Uh, he makes gold shields. Uh, it talks about his throne, Solomon's specific throne. It was an ivory throne covered in gold with statues of lions leading up uh, to the throne. Nothing like his throne in the, in the whole world. Uh, he has 12,000 horses, um, and it says he ruled for 40 years. Uh, he dies, and his son 
Rehoboam becomes king. And now we switch over into this story, and this kind of shows, this is uh, where the kingdom gets split. They are at this high point, and uh, things start to uh, go sideways as soon as Solomon dies. So Rehoboam becomes king, and uh, the people have uh, a person that they, who has been over them uh, as a uh, overseer of the work. His name is Jeroboam, and the people in Jeroboam go to Rehoboam. And they ask him to make their work lighter because they've been working like crazy. It says Solomon had made uh, the, it hard on them with all the work they had to do. And so they go and ask for a break. And uh, Roboam goes for advice and he talks to he talks to the elders and they say, uh, give them a break and they will serve you forever. And then it says, then he asks, uh, the younger people who he grew up with, what uh, what they think, and they say, be even harder on them, and uh, rule them uh, even harsher. And so he listens to the younger guys, and he comes back and says, nope, I'm going to make things even harder. Um, and so the people rebel, and it says they go home. This is the people of the northern tribes. And uh, so they leave with Jeroboam, and uh, he sends an official up to talk to them, to tell them to get in line, and they stone him. And at that point, all the northern tribes have left, and they've defected, and they're going to be ruled by Jeroboam. So the kingdom is split right there. And it had to do over all of this work, all of this uh, magnificent stuff that we had just talked about there uh, seemed to have taken a taking a toll on the people. And uh, it actually didn't have to go this way. Uh, he could have, Rehoboam could have uh, listened to the elders and uh, cut him some slack, and things could have gone very differently, but he didn't. And so it's split. And so Rehoboam decides to attack Israel. So now when you get into kings, it gets, gets kind of complicated because it's got, these kind of dueling uh, nations that they're talking about now, and it's and it uh, gets confusing a little bit because they're the same. They're actually uh, the same people. It's Israel and Judah uh, are the are the are the two factions, and uh, so they go. Rehoboam goes to attack them, and uh, through a prophet, uh, Shemaiah. Uh, he goes and warns them not to, and uh, says, God doesn't want you to do this because they are your relatives. They're actually all the same people. Uh, he tells them to go home. So this time they listen, uh, and they go home. And it's interesting because the way it split the northern tribes, and then you have Judah, where Rehoboam is, uh, that's where the temple is. And so the priests and the Levites support Rehoboam, and they leave and go with him. And so Jeroboam, uh, it says, chooses his own priests. Uh, and he kind of has to make up his own 
uh, religion now. He doesn't have to, but that's what he does. And so it says he says he sets up shrines and palaces of worship, places of worship. Uh, this is nice. He says he sets up, up places of worship for uh, a goat demon and calves. Um, so uh, things went sideways pretty quickly there. And um, some of the people who were with them, with uh, the northern tribe Jeroboam, they still wanted to worship God. And it says that they left that group and came back to uh, Judah uh, and were loyal to Rehoboam because uh, they wanted to serve God. Uh, it talks about uh, Re Rehoboam's uh, family. He had 28 sons. Uh, he puts these sons in charge of different fortified cities that they have. Uh, and one specific son, Abijah, is chosen. He's going to be the next king. Um, and it talks about here uh, in 12, it says, Soon after Rehoboam becomes king, he leads everyone in Judah away from obeying God. Um, so we go from this high point with Solomon in the temple and a time of prosperity and, uh, um, uh, things quickly, uh, go sideways. Uh, the kingdom is split in two, uh, both, both, uh, factions have now decided to stop obeying God and it talks about how God then lets uh, the king of Egypt to invade, and uh, he takes all the fortified cities and Jeroboam or Rehoboam, and all the leaders are uh, hiding out in Jerusalem. And while they're there, they repent, and God hears them. Uh, this is pretty amazing. They had just gone astray, and uh, it's kind of that cycle we heard through Kings where. The, they go astray, and they repent, and God uh, saves them. And so uh, God answers their prayer, and uh, he doesn't let the Egyptian king completely destroy them. Um, so, But he does go in and attack Jerusalem. He takes all the valuable things out of the temple. Um, but Rehoboam has turned back to God, and so... Uh, they actually uh, are able to be uh, somewhat prosperous again during this time, and it says because he had turned back to God. Uh, Rehoboam was 41 when he became king. He served for 17 years, and it notes here that during his rule, he was constantly at war uh, with Jeroboam. So Israel and Judah were constantly at war during this time. So that is 12, and uh, let's go ahead and jump over into John for our New Testament reading. Um, so we are in John 11 through 13. So we're going to be talking about uh, Lazarus, and we're leading up to uh, Jesus' final days on earth here. And it and it actually uh, this moment with Lazarus and John seems to be a really a key 
a moment that led uh, up to the crucifixion uh, and uh, his triumphal entry and the whole deal. Uh, so let's let's jump in here. So eleven, uh, Lazarus is the brother of Mary and Martha. Uh, he is sick, and uh, they send a message to Jesus, telling him Lazarus is sick. And um, it's interesting they they call Lazarus the one he loves. So Jesus knew these these folks very well and loved them. Uh, Jesus says it's not going to lead to the, to uh, death, but to uh, the glory of God. And so Jesus stays where he was. I, he wasn't in the same place as, as uh, Lazarus. Two more days, and during this time, uh, Lazarus dies. And so he tells the disciple they're going to go back, and they're going back to Judea which is, and he says, I'm going to go wake up my friend Lazarus. And it's funny because they, as usual, don't get it. Uh, Jesus means he's dead, and they think he's sleeping. Uh, but they're warning Jesus not to go back there because they had just escaped from Judea because uh, they were trying to stone Jesus and kill him, and he's going back, um, which is interesting. Uh, so this this... This, uh, it's kind of a hot spot uh, uh, for Jesus, so both supporters and people who want to kill him. And so, um, so Jesus says, "I'm, I'm, I'm going to go back. I'm glad I wasn't there because this is going to be an op- opportunity for you to believe." And Thomas speaks up and says, "Let's go with him, and we can die with him in Judea." And so uh, they're kind of. Heading into this uh, uh, hostile, hostile place, and and Thomas says that, and it's kind of funny. I can't tell if he's if this is he's being kind of sarcastic, or if this is faith, or he's being honorable here in what he's saying. But it's interesting that that's what Thomas says. Let's go with Jesus and die in Judea, uh, and so. Jesus gets there, and Lazarus is already in the tomb, and Martha meets him out there and says, if you would have been here, you would have been saved. Uh, and Jesus says, your brother's going to live. He's going to rise. And they get in this whole thing. She says, I know he'll rise in the resurrection. And then Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Uh, whoever believes in me, uh, they will die, but will still live. Uh, whoever believes in me will never really die. And she says, do you believe? And she says, yes, you are the Christ. And uh, so that was Jesus talking to Martha. And then Mary comes out to meet him. And when Mary comes, she brings a whole big group of people with her, of mourners uh, who were there mourning the death of Lazarus. And... Um, they're all weeping and mourning, and it's interesting because Jesus has um, such confidence and faith, obviously, in uh, what's going to happen. He's already said he's gonna he's gonna wake him up, and uh, but at the same time, it it talks about how he's deeply moved uh, in his spirit and is greatly troubled. Um, 
which is really interesting. This contrast uh, of both his his confidence and faith that Lazarus is going to be raised, but at the same time, he is also moved and troubled and mourning with those who are mourning uh, 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 there with him. And so Jesus says, where is he buried? And so they take him there. And um, that's interesting. People are questioning him even then. Uh, some are Some are saying... Wow, look how much he loved Lazarus, because I'm guessing he's crying and he's mourning as well. And uh, some are saying he could heal blind people. Why why didn't he heal Lazarus? And uh, so they get there again and saying Jesus is deeply moved and he's upset. And uh, he has them roll the stone away from the tomb. And uh, Martha, Martha says it's been four days and he's going to stink. And uh, Jesus says, if you have faith, you're going to see God's glory. And so he prays, and he gives thanks to God. And it's interesting, he does this prayer. Uh, he says, "God, thank you, God, you answer my prayers, you always hear me. And then at the end of the prayer, he says, I'm praying like this just so these people can hear, and they'll believe that you sent me. Uh, and then he shouts, Lazarus, come out. And um, man, I would love to see this. Lazarus comes out. I don't know how he's how he's walking exactly because it says he's covered up and tied in like burial uh, clothing. Uh, his face is covered. He's all wrapped up like a like a body, like to be buried. And uh, Jesus tells him to untie him. Uh, it says many many who saw believed in Jesus that day, and um, so this. This event here, Lazarus being raised, sets off, um, I don't know, uh, uh, shockwaves through the, through the whole town. And so it's a sensation. The people are stirred up. Uh, it says many believed in Jesus that day, but also uh, some went and told the Pharisees. And the Pharisees are all stirred up because they can see that uh, a lot of people are going to be uh, believing in Jesus now uh, because of this miracle. And so they're worried. And um, it's interesting. It's talking about how um, the Pharisees viewed this, that it was going to stir up the people and they're going to start believing in Jesus and put their faith in him, and they connected this, the Pharisees did also then to uh, the Romans were going to uh, use this to come into the temple and destroy the temple. Uh, I'm not sure exactly how all that worked out, but they connected the people putting their faith in Jesus with the the Romans then coming in and taking over. And so... It notes here that one of the council leaders, Caiaphas, speaks up and he tells the people it's better for one person to die than the whole nation be destroyed. And um, I don't, I think, it, I don't know if it's because uh, they were wanting to make him a king and if he was a king then that would be uh, a challenge to the Roman authority and then the Romans would come in and uh, have to take over and destroy them. 
So they're saying it's better we we kill this guy who they want to make king than the whole nation be destroyed. And it's amazing because he's saying it's better for one person to die than the whole nation be destroyed. And it says he was prophesying about Jesus and he didn't know it. He's prophesying how Jesus is going to die for the whole world. So it is one person dying so everyone can be saved. It's just on a larger scale than Caiaphas really understood. And it, so it says at that, at that moment, uh, they start plotting to kill Jesus. And uh, Jesus then has to leave. He goes out into the country, and uh, he has to now uh, uh, watch even closer what he's doing because they're plotting to kill him straight up. And uh, chapter 12, it says, uh, Jesus goes back. So I said he had gone into the country, then he comes back and he's having dinner uh, with this with the same group of people, with Mary and Martha, and it even says Lazarus, it, it, Lazarus is there, and uh, they're having dinner, and um, this gets into the scene where Mary comes out and uh, pours the expensive perfume on Jesus' feet, and Judas is angry and says, uh, we could have used that perfume for the, for the poor. And uh, then it notes that Jesus didn't really, or Judas didn't really care about the poor. Uh, he carried the money bags and sometimes stole from it. Uh, it's pretty incredible, this, this sort of uh, false virtue signaling uh, virtue signaling from ancient times, uh, and he's really full of it. And uh, Jesus says, leave her alone. Uh, this perfume has been kept for my burial. Uh, you will always have the poor with you, but you won't always have me. And uh, so many people are coming. Uh, they're coming to see Lazarus because uh, they heard he was raised from the dead, and this is freaking out the uh, chief priests. Um because it's giving all these people reason to believe in Jesus and put their faith in him. Uh, so the next day, uh, Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, and a huge crowd is there. And uh, it's this crowd, it, it has to do with this miracle with Lazarus, um, that the people were there telling them about what he had done uh, in, in raising him from the dead. And so these people are really excited to see Jesus. And so they come out and they're shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, um, king of Israel. They're wanting to make him king. Uh, he's riding in on a donkey. Uh, this is to fulfill the scripture in uh, Zechariah 9 and 9, uh, which talks about how your king is coming, sitting on a donkey. Um uh, so, so, so this is like a really excited scene. People are there uh, because they've. Some of the people who were there when Lazarus was raised are there in the city, and they're telling everyone, and it's kind of creating this hysteria. And uh, Jesus says, uh, "The time has come," and this is really uh, awesome uh, analogy. He uses he uses a grain of wheat. Uh, 
how a grain of wheat has to die for it to produce uh, uh, lots of wheat. It has to first die, and if it doesn't, it will just stay there alone. And he says, if you love your life, you will lose it. If you give it up in this world, you will gain it in the next world. If you serve me, the Father will honor you. Uh, amazingly profound uh, statements there. Uh, Jesus is deeply troubled at this time. Um, he says, what should I say? Father, deliver me deliver me from this and he says no that's why i came and he says father glorify your name so he's talking to these people uh here and uh while he's he's saying this a voice from heaven says i have glorified it and i will do it again and uh the people heard it the people heard this voice from heaven and uh, says so some think it was thunder, some think it was an angel. Uh, Jesus says the voice was there to help them. And uh, fascinating, he says, the world is being judged and its ruler is being thrown out. Its ruler is being thrown out. Uh, I must be lifted up and make everyone come to me. And... Uh, the people aren't totally understanding. They're saying, how can how can this be? The Messiah is going to live forever. Um, Jesus talks about how they should walk in faith while the light is with them because he's only going to be there a little longer. And uh, Jesus goes into hiding, and it talks about how he had um, performed many miracles, but many people were still not believing. Um we get into chapter 13, and uh, Jesus knows his time is coming. Uh, they're having the Passover feast. It talks about how the devil had put in uh, the thought and the idea into Judas' heart to betray Jesus. Uh, that's an interesting uh, way to put that. They put He put it in Judas' heart. Uh, it's an amazing scene. Jesus gets up and puts a towel around him. And gets down and begins to... So, so this is at the Passover feast. They're having their meal. And um, so Jesus gets down and starts washing the disciples' feet. And he gets an interaction with Peter. Peter's saying, why? And he says, you'll understand later. And Peter says, no. Uh, uh, and Jesus says, I have to. If I, if I don't, you don't belong to me. And he says, don't just wash my feet, wash my hands and my head. And um, after he's done, uh, Jesus gets up and he says, do you understand what I did? Do you understand what I'm doing here? And um, he says, if the teacher washes your feet, you should do the same for each other. I set the example as a servant and as the servant is not greater than the master, so do what I do, and God will bless you uh, for doing it. Uh, and then again, um, so it's amazing he's giving this lesson here on serving each other uh, right before he goes. This is, he knows uh, this is the end, and his time is coming, and uh, uh, you, would, you would think... He wants to make these last 
uh, messages the most poignant, and that is one of them, to serve one another. And uh, it says Jesus is deeply troubled. He again calls out uh, that somebody's going to betray him. One of them is going to betray him. They're, they start asking which one's going to betray him, and Jesus uh, Jesus dips bread and gives it to Judas and says, the one I give the bread uh, is the one who betrays me, and Judas takes it. And it says, when he took the bread, Satan entered into him. Uh, this is ama amazing. I'm not... Um, and then Jesus says to him, he says, what, what you're about to do, do it quickly. And it says, Jesus, uh, Judas leaves immediately. And uh, it's amazing because they still, the, everybody else doesn't understand. It's, it seems plain to us. What's, they don't understand what's happening. They think Judas gets up to leave to go to buy uh, supplies. Uh, but he's gone. He's gone to betray him. Uh, Jesus again starts talking about how he's only going to be there for a little while. And he gives this, uh, uh, the great commandment here. He says, I give you a new command to love one another. Just as I have loved you, everyone will know you are my disciples by your love for one another. So again, uh, these last last moments Jesus, Jesus has uh, on the planet uh, before his death, he's... He is uh, emphasizing uh, this great command, the great command of love for one another. And um, again, they're still not uh, quite understanding what's happening. Peter, the chapter ends here, Peter saying, where are you going? And Jesus saying, where I'm going, you can't go, but you'll go later. And Peter says, I'll follow you, I'll lay down my life for you. And uh, Jesus says, will you? Will you now? And uh, I tell you the truth, the rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. And um, that's where we end on chapter 13. And so that's our New Testament reading uh, for this week. Incredible uh, man. The book of John is just... Um, it might be my favorite gospel. I don't know. Uh, so, uh, this chapter 13, um, incredible. These last moments with Jesus, uh, emphasizing to love one another. Um, it's our great command. And um, so that's our reading for this week, guys. Uh, thank you so much for tuning in and listening. I hope you're enjoying reading the Bible with us. And uh, keep following along, subscribe and share, and uh, we'll be coming next week with week 23. Hope you all have an awesome week this week. Have a good one. Thanks. Peace.